Three SEC schools have made their starting quarterback decisions, while another has announced it will prolong the competition through at least the first week of the season. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. Today on the episode, we will get into the starting quarterback decisions at Auburn, Georgia, and Florida, and what Missouri is going to do as well. The Tigers have not named a starter. The other three have. We will discuss how long we think those decisions will last. But first, before the season even begins, John and I are second-guessing some of our uh, some of our preseason narratives we were subscribing to or or producing earlier this off season. John, I know there's a few things on your mind. Let's uh, let's start with maybe the biggest thing that you're starting to second guess as we're uh, we're less than two weeks away from the start of the season. Yeah, at the end of one season, I started looking ahead to the other, start kind of analyzing depth charts. Uh, then you go through the transfer portal and see which teams are strengthened, which teams are weaknesses. So you begin to form an opinion early on, and there's nothing that happens that really change that opinion. However, uh, I read more as the, near the start of the season, and a couple of things really stood out. One is Kentucky. I don't see Kentucky as a first division team in the SEC East. However, the more I look at that lineup and I think about Devin Leary, quarterback, if he could really regain his form uh, pre-injury that he had in NC State, Kentucky has the makings of a a really strong passing game, which we don't normally associate with Kentucky. And they have a pretty good history on defense. So that's a team I'm thinking I might have underrated. I think that's the main one. I guess another one that comes to mind in the other direction maybe is South Carolina. As you've noticed, I'm all in on Spencer Rattler. Uh, uh, yes, I have noticed yeah, that, John. Okay. We, we, we spent some time last week yes. uh, dedicated to my quarterback rankings. And as you, you pointed out multiple times during that episode, Spencer Rattler at number six was way too low. I think you would have had him at number two, you said. So I'm surprised to hear the Gamecocks are, are tumbling down in your preseason estimation. Well, it has nothing to do with Spencer Rattler. It's the I, I wouldn't think so. No, not at all. He's still up there on a pedestal. But it's the guys around him. I really wonder how good South Carolina's offensive line would be. Maybe it'll be okay. Uh, I wonder about its running backs. Uh, not proven depth there. Um, defense could be okay, but... Maybe I got swayed too much by that powerful finish South Carolina had, winning the last two regular season games against top 10 teams, then almost beating Notre Dame in a bowl game, an unnationally ranked team. So I'm having second thoughts, but, you know, it's too late to change my original thought. It's not as though I'm I'm changing what I'm saying. It's just maybe I'm preparing myself to be ready to jump off a bandwagon. Okay, you're you're our admitting that our, a, a little bit of doubt is creeping yeah. in. Or uh-huh. okay. jump on a bad wagon uh, in Kentucky's case. Uh, what about you? Yeah, uh, I, I tend to agree with you in the East, and I'm, we'll get to the, the SEC West in a moment. But like you, I would say in the last six weeks or so, 
I feel like my estimation of Kentucky is inching up and my estimation of South Carolina is heading in the opposite direction. I mean, I think back in the spring, I probably would have said South Carolina could, you know, if a couple things fall their way, they could wind up being maybe even a New Year's Six type of team. Now that sounded, maybe sounded pretty lofty, but like you, I kind of had visions of the Tennessee game, the Clemson game still lingering in my brain in an eight win season. I thought, boy, you just flip one or two of those results and all of a sudden you're in the New Year's Six conversation. Whereas Kentucky, perhaps last season was lingering with both of us. Kentucky came into last year, had a lot of hype around Will Levis and their offense, it flopped, frankly. Will Levis was was not as good of a college quarterback as advertised, particularly last season. Uh, Kentucky missed offensive coordinator Liam Cohen. He's back this year. Um, but also Kentucky's offensive line last year was, uh, was not its typical strength. And so I think with visions of last season in my mind, I was pretty high on South Carolina and and a little bit low on Kentucky. I've probably flipped those at this point. And part of it is what you were saying earlier about South Carolina's supporting cast. I have a lot of questions about that. And offensive line, they suffered a, an injury in the in the spring game to a unit that really couldn't afford it. Jalen Nichols, their left tackle, sustained a, a significant knee injury in in the spring. And that was a unit that's been hurting the last few years anyway. You mentioned at running back, you know, that's not going to be a position of of strength necessarily. DK Joyner, who is a versatile athlete, he's played multiple spots throughout his career. He's probably going to be the top option at at running back. I I like the combination of of Rattler and Antoine, Antoine Wells, the star wide receiver, Juice Wells that's back. But I feel like the defense is just okay. And the other thing with South Carolina, John, that I don't know I, I was giving enough credit to in the spring was really diving in and looking at this schedule. I recently ranked the SEC's toughest schedules throughout just the month of September. And I had South Carolina's ranked as the toughest September schedule of any SEC team. They'll play three preseason top 25 teams in September. North Carolina, at Georgia, at Tennessee. They play four Power 5 opponents in the month of September. They're the only SEC team that has that combination. Three ranked teams plus four Power 5s. They're the only one with that combination. Conceivably, South Carolina could come out of September 1 and 4. I think they'll do better than that. But when you look at that schedule, you can see it going sideways pretty early uh, particularly if they're struggling on their offensive line. Because of that schedule and because of the opener against North Carolina, I think we'll find out a lot about South Carolina really early. If South Carolina loses to North Carolina, that would be a really bad sign. And, and I look at that game as sort of a toss-up type game. Mm-hmm. And if it loses, and you still got to go through the rest of that month and you got to play Georgia. Um it's just a, and then Tennessee uh, on the road. It, it, it's just really going to be a, a kind of an uphill struggle. I wonder though if, you know, I guess what it amounts to, 
we have too much time to think about all this, <laughs> talk about it and write about it. So our opinions can go back and forth and maybe we've overthought this. Maybe South Carolina will be fine. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that we're maybe taking a more holistic view of all the information because, you know, I just mentioned the September games and then you add in South Carolina's annual crossover from the West is Texas A&M, whom we both think is going to be much improved this year. They'll have Clemson, one of the best couple teams out of the ACC. And I look, I we know, I mean, South Carolina finished last year hot. They beat Tennessee and Clemson. We know they can beat good opponents. But if you, as you just look at this schedule in the preseason, I mean, there's there's five games right there. North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas A&M, and Clemson. Those are probably five games against top 25 opponents. And then you add in a, a swing game against Kentucky. Uh, South Carolina lost to Missouri last year. That game will be on the road this year. So, you know, you add it all up and, you know, you start to see a South Carolina team where the floor could be like six and six. The ceiling could be say maybe around nine and three. I I think they're that team in the East with a huge gap between the floor and the ceiling. Blake, I think that's why the uh, North Carolina opener looms so large. If South Carolina loses that game, it's not going to match an eight win season. To me, it's seven and five at best if it loses that game. So that's a really crucial opener. I'm not saying it will lose it, but it's going against a really good quarterback in Drake May. So it's a very appealing game from a quarterback matchup standpoint. But it's a game that uh, South Carolina just really has to win. It's uh, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a very challenging schedule. Uh, it's like it overscheduled. When you have a rival like Clemson, uh, potential top 10 team do you really need to to schedule another uh power five team that could make the top 25 i i mean i like to see it as an observer of college football we're, we're both all for good games but sure. you know from the if you're in the trenches at south carolina i think you wish north carolina was replaced by like north carolina a&m or something, right? Like you don't want them on that schedule with Clemson. And if we're comparing them head to head against Kentucky, I think what we're saying is those two programs might be of similar abilities. But if you look at the schedule, Kentucky has, as usual, a much more favorable schedule. And that could parlay into a difference of of maybe one or two wins in the record versus South Carolina when there may not be a, a lot separating these two teams and abilities, but in record, you know, it could be the difference between one of these teams going eight and, eight and four and the other team going six and six. I think it's really important for South Carolina. I guess it's important for everybody, but South Carolina's recruited pretty well under Shane Beamer. If by midseason it's getting help from some of those recruits, uh, I just think it's going to need that kind of depth. And if it's right about some of these four-star players, perhaps that could uh, bolster its chances uh, in the second half of the season. I think that's really important because I don't see a lot of overall depth, quality depth there. 
All right, let's flip over to the SEC West, John. We were in pretty much of a shared thought there in the East. We're both second-guessing sort of the same narratives that we had earlier in the preseason. How about in the West? Is there something that you find yourself getting a little worried about that you maybe had been believing earlier in the offseason? Well, you know how hard the, how tough the West is. I mean, you can be the worst team in that division and play in a bowl game. And so when you say you pick somebody last in the West, that's that doesn't necessarily mean you've reached the depths of uh, despair. And I have Auburn last in the in the West. And the more I think about that, uh, the more I think about Hugh Freeze and his track record, he's won wherever he's been. He's had an immediate impact on in transfer, uh, in the transfer portal, in recruiting. Uh, he's the kind of coach with the kind of program, with a fan base, home fan base, that could really pull off an upset. So I, that's the team I'm having second thoughts about. And I think it was a really good sign uh, whom they picked to start the season at quarterback. Uh, a changing, changing of the guard. That was, a to me, a positive step. I, I agree with that. Yeah, going with Michigan State transfer, Peyton Thorne, that frees up Robbie Ashford to be more of a gadget guy, an athlete. We both really like Ashford's athleticism. We like that much more than his passing ability, and I think this selection of Peyton Thorne as starting quarterback suggests that Hugh Freeze feels similarly. I still have... Auburn as my number seven team in the West, John, but you make some good points about the freeze factor in year one. You look at his history, his first season at Arkansas State, he won, it was his only season at Arkansas State, but in his one and only season as Arkansas State's coach, he won 10 games. Arkansas State, the previous season, won four games. He came in to Ole Miss, an Ole Miss offense that had been pretty abysmal the year before. Passing game, non-existent, really just not much doing for Ole Miss at all the year before Hugh Freeze's arrival. He brought in Bo Wallace as a transfer quarterback for year one. The Ole Miss offensive output nearly doubled in Hugh Freeze's first season as compared to the year before. Ole Miss went to a bowl game that year, won their bowl game, finished 7-6. and You go back to what he did in Liberty. Yeah, that's not an SEC job. However, Liberty, he hit hit the ground running year one, won eight games, won at least eight games in every season he's had there. Hugh Freeze has only had one losing season throughout his his FBS career. So although I'm not changing my stance on Auburn being last in the West, and I say that because of what else I see in the West and how much I think it is going to be a gauntlet this year, it's going to be top-heavy with LSU and Alabama, and I think as you go on down the line, there's no weak outs there. I do think if there's a case to be made, it's it's what Freeze has done from year one. He's not a guy – he might preach patience. If you hear what he's saying about this team, he's really sort of publicly trying to temper expectations a little bit, but his track record suggests he's a guy that can get it done from year one, and I agree with you. I think Peyton Thorne – Although he's not going to be an all-SEC performer type of player, he does change what's what could be capable for this offense, which 
had really no passing game to speak of last season. Blake, I also think because of Hugh Freeze's offensive expertise, you mentioned Robbie Ashford. Maybe, maybe uh, coming up with some gimmick package for him, find a way to utilize him. That's the one thing that I've always – the really good offensive court coaches find a way to use everybody on the roster that is usable. They, they don't just, well, he doesn't fit here. No, they find, they find a way to use him. They put some thought into that. And Robbie Ashford's a guy you can do with you can do with that, do that with. I mean, Auburn's okay at running back, but I think you could put him at running back in a situation. You could put him in the Wildcat package, certainly. You could put him out in the slot. You could give him the ball on a reverse. Guys like Hugh Freeze will find ways to use that talent. And they might, they might be able to execute it at a really key moment in a really important game. So yeah, I, I guess I've got Auburn seventh too, but you know, if it finished three spots higher, I probably wouldn't be shocked at all. Yeah, it's with Robbie Ashford. When we think back to the Iron Bowl, I mean, he basically was functioning as a Wildcat quarterback then. I mean, he, he yeah. threw you know a handful of passes in that game, completed one really nice one, and threw a bunch of incompletions in between. But what he did as a running quarterback basically running kind of a speed option, read option combination type thing. It was almost like high school football of you put the ball in the hands of your most dynamic player and you see how much trouble you can cause for the defense. And it made that game more interesting than I think most of us expected. And, you know, I think Nick Saban came away feeling fortunate that Alabama was was able to win that game by uh, you know, three three scores like they did based on how much their run defense had trouble with Ashford. So he could be that wildcat quarterback that can actually throw it a little bit. You know, we've seen other teams over the years put like a wide receiver at wildcat, and the threat of them throwing passes is is very minimal. I think back to Kentucky with, with Lynn Bowden, um, you know, playing several games at quarterback. He might throw three or four passes a game, and that was about it. While Ashford is limited as a starting quarterback as a passer it'd be for a wildcat quarterback is a little better than i think what you normally get as a wildcat passer so i yeah i I know we're kind of segueing into the starting quarterback conversation and that's good because we have plenty to get to there but as we start with auburn i think this is the right choice going with peyton thorne there's also holden garner the redshirt freshman didn't see him really last season um you have to think that Peyton Thorne as a two-year starter at Mississippi State, you know, further along in his development, makes sense that he would be the guy, you know, to start the season while, as we said, maybe finding a package that you can use with Robbie Ashford for, you know, a handful of plays every game. And I really think with you, Freeze, he will not be satisfied at quarterback. He will always be looking for somebody even better. And he will use that transfer portal to get those guys if he can. I, th- I think he has, based on his track record, he has a he has a chance to recruit quarterbacks pretty well there. I want to get into some other quarterback thoughts here soon, John. But before we leave Auburn behind, curious your thoughts as to this. There's two first year coaches in the SEC this year. Different circumstances. Hugh Freeze replaced the fired Brian Harson, who lasted only 21 games at Auburn. And, and, you know, just back in 2020, 
Auburn hi- uh, fired Gus Malzahn. So we know Auburn's quick to, to make a change, and it's a pressure-packed job. But it's pressure of a different sort for Zach Arnett at Mississippi State. Because unlike a lot of guys in the SEC, Zach Arnett's not protected by some fat contract, some fat buyout. Um, you know, he was the defensive coordinator when Mike Leach died in December and was promoted first to interim coach and then quickly to the head job. So I don't think you'll find many people who would say Zach Arnett does not deserve this opportunity. I think he was the right choice for that moment. However, there's not a ton of contractual support if this thing goes sideways that Mississippi State couldn't make a change a couple years down the road. And with the way that Mississippi State performed with Mike Leach's coach, particularly last season, I do think that sets you know, a high bar for Zach Arnett. Even though his defense had such a big hand in the results last year, he wasn't the head coach. Now he'll be judged as a head coach. So both these guys, I think, face pressure of two different sorts. Hugh Freeze, because there's always pressure at Auburn. Zach Arnett, because he doesn't have that fat buyout, because you know this is sort, sort of looks like an experiment anyway with him. He gets first shot to see if he can do it. If not, Mississippi State could easily move on a couple years. Which of those two guys do you think faces more year one pressure? I think Zach Garnett does uh, because Hugh Freeze has a track record. There's always uncertainty when you have a coordinator who's never been a head coach. No matter how good he was as a coordinator, there's still a question, can he run a program? Particularly, can he run an SEC program? And we just don't know. Maybe he do he'll do really well. Uh, Kirby Smart has managed to make that uh, <laughs> transition in spectacular fashion. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt, not so much. So we don't know how that will go. I uh, think it's important. You point out that I hadn't even thought about the contractual thing. That that's very significant. And when you were talking about that, and I was thinking back to the Mike Leach era, and I was going back one era further and thinking about Dan Mullen. Well, um, you skipped right over Joe Moorhead. He, he was gone in a no, blink. <laughs> that shows you just how I'm, fast even Mississippi State can make a change, too. It's not just Auburn. <laughs> I, I, that is – you're so right. Usually I'm pretty good with coaches, but it's as though he never happened. Yeah, he, he, it, was, it, he was here and gone so fast. And, and he wasn't one of these guys that spent like a long time in the SEC. He was an outsider anyway, and he yeah. came and went so quickly, it's like he was never here. It's, it's as though whenever somebody brings in a new coach, you hear it often. I'm sure you heard it when Nick Saban was hired at LSU. I don't know if he's a good fit for LSU. You say, Urban Meyer, I don't know if he's a good fit for Florida, the SEC. Uh, I don't know if Brian Kelly's a good fit for LSU. And you give it a more a little more thought and you think, well, why wouldn't he be a good fit? He can really coach. He wins wherever he goes. So he'll he'll be a Brian Kelly be a fine fit. Urban Meyer was a fine fit wherever he went. So yeah, that's not an issue. But I with Joe Morad, when I thought, man, that looks like an awful fit for Mississippi State. <laughs> and it really was an awful And it was. Yeah. 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 I think Zach Arnett's a good fit. I I do yeah. agree with you though. I think he faces more pressure than Hugh Freeze does this year. And that's in a vacuum, that's kind of surprising to say that that an Auburn coach would face less pressure in year one than a Mississippi State coach. I just think with the situation, um, you know, Auburn's had two firings in a span of three years now. 
Hugh Freeze has the proven track record. In so much as Auburn could ever be patient, and I'm maybe I'm making a mistake even mentioning Auburn and patient in the same sentence, but I think there will be, by Auburn standards, a little bit of a feeling of, okay, we've seen this guy get it done at multiple places throughout his career. Don't panic after the first loss of the season. This guy can do it. Whereas Arnett, we know he's really good as a defensive coordinator, but you know we got sidetracked by Joe Moorhead. But the point you're trying to make, Dan Mullen and Mike Leach, Mississippi State fans are are spoiled at this point, you know, by the success that Mullen and Leach had throughout their tenure. They showed you can maybe you can't win a national championship there on day one, but you can you can win eight, nine, ten games, go to bowl games every year. So that sets the bar for Zach Arnett. So I, I do agree with you. I think he he faces more pressure than Hugh Freeze does in year one because he doesn't have anything as a head coach on paper. Having forgotten completely that Joe Moorhead even existed in the SEC gives me an idea for a future podcast, the most forgettable coaches <laughs> in SEC football history. Moorhead would be a strong contender for at least a, a podium finish, I think. So, again, go back to that Mississippi State situation. Would Mississippi State rehire Dan Mullen? Uh, ask me in two years. Let's see how the Zach Arnett thing goes. Because Dan Mullen said recently uh, on Saturday Down South's podcast that if he were to be associated as a, with a certain school, it would be Mississippi State, not Florida. You know, he was almost setting himself up as, uh, yeah, I have great feelings of Mississippi State. And he, he didn't have such uh, rosy things to say about Florida. Of course, he left Mississippi State of his own choice, and he was fired at Florida. That would make sense why maybe he was expressing these thoughts. But, yeah, Dan Mullen's just floating around out there at ESPN, doing a nice job there, but you get the sense that he doesn't want to jump back into this thing for an opportunity that he's not sure about. Uh, I don't think he wants to jump back in as a coordinator. I think if he wanted to, he could have done that already perhaps even at Alabama. So we've seen he's been patient. If this doesn't work for Mississippi State and Zach Arnett, which who knows, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. There's really no way to tell at this point. It's like you said earlier, Kirby Smart worked great. Jeremy Pruitt didn't. You never know with these coordinators sometimes. But if it doesn't work for Arnett at Mississippi State, I don't know if Dan Mullen would be interested. I don't know if he'll still be in ESPN at that time. But I... I would be surprised if it's not an idea at least floated around out there. Uh, getting off target a little bit here. Do you think coaches learn from their mistakes? And I'm not talking about a uh, a play choice on third and short or fourth and short. I'm talking about having failed at a program. Dan, Dan Mullen succeeded as a coordinator. He succeeded at Mississippi State as a head coach and succeeded initially at Florida as a head coach. And then it all went awry in one season. Do you think coaches as a group are able to look back on that, revisit it, reanalyze it? Here's where things went wrong. Here's why. Here's what I would do differently. Do you think they do that? Generally speaking, I think no. I think most coaches see themselves as infallible. I think if they had a bad season, there were – 
external factors beyond their control. Um, you know, there's a lot of excuse making. Coaches love making excuses while prefacing it with, well, I'm not making an excuse, but, yeah. <laughs> and then they rattle off a bunch of excuses. So now I don't think coaches learn from their mistakes very often because I don't think coaches admit that they made mistakes very often. They're always blaming somebody else. And if you listen to Mullen on that podcast that, that he joined with Saturday Down South, he was talking about Florida's facilities, um, you know, the, the pandemic season and the shoe throw and all these different things, which some of them were fair points. You know, I mean, Florida has made some facilities changes to try to help Billy Napier. And it, they can be fair points while also you use them to maybe mask some of your own deficiencies as a coach. So I don't know if Dan Mullen would would admit that he made any mistakes at Florida. I don't think a lot of coaches would admit that they made mistakes. But I do think Dan Mullen proved throughout almost his entire tenure at Mississippi State, and honestly, throughout most of his tenure at Florida, he's a pretty good coach. I don't know if he wants to, to play the hits again at Mississippi State. And this conference is getting tougher with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma. And honestly, Dan Mullen has a better, easier life, I guess I should say, as a television analyst than he does as a head coach. That's just the nature of the business. Um, Not to say those those TV guys don't have their workout cut out for them too, but it's not the same demands as it is to be a head coach. So he might just enjoy uh, cashing in that buyout from Florida, making money from ESPN and and uh, just keep doing that. But we won't be the last people to, to float that theory, John, if, uh, if things get sideways for Zach Arnett. We'll say that. I've, I've still got that candle burning for Urban Meyer's comeback. Oh, I know you do. <laughs> uh, Urban Meyer going to Mississippi State, though? Come on. John. No, 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 no. I'm Mississippi okay. State. No. Okay. Okay. Um, let's get into the other starting quarterbacks because there, there were – you know, several headlines here in the recent days, locking down decisions. Uh, Carson Beck at Georgia, no real surprise there. There had been some reports out of Athens that tried to make you believe Brock Vandergriff was nipping at Carson Beck's heels. Uh, you and I never believed that. Brock Vandergriff might be a long-term talented guy. He's never completed a pass in a college game. And Kirby Smart, even more so than most coaches, likes a guy with experience, likes the tried and true. Carson Beck was the tried and true backup, and he's next in line of, of succession as Georgia's quarterback. Very natural selection for Georgia to make there, going with Carson Beck. Um, Florida, I think it was sort of a lack of, of better options in going with Graham Mertz, the Wisconsin transfer. And Florida's trying to spin this. Billy Napier's trying to spin this. What, what else can you do? Uh, I guess you have to. And Graham Mertz seems plenty motivated. I'll say that. But I really think it's more of an indictment on Florida's quarterback room than anything else that Graham Mertz was was named starter at, at Florida. And then at Missouri, they're going to prolong the competition through at least the first game of the season uh, between returning starter Brady Cook and redshirt freshman Sam Horn. Eli Drinkwitz has said both will play in a week one game against FCS South Dakota. That to me seems like a smart choice. Uh, I've talked before. I think Missouri's got enough pieces on defense that they could be a problem for certain teams in the East, but that's only if they get better quarterback play 
than what they've had for most of the last couple seasons. So why not use your schedule to your benefit? Uh, Missouri doesn't play an SEC game until week five. Um, first four games, all non-conference. So I think this is a good move to sort of uh, let this play on out on the field between Brady Cook and Sam Horn. So your reaction to those those three quarterback decisions around the conference? Yeah, none of them surprised me. I, I thought, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it was important that Peyton Thorne, the Michigan State transfer, win the job. Because if he didn't, you still wonder, will Auburn be able to throw the ball well enough? And I'm not saying uh, Peyton Thornton is anywhere near Peyton Manning, but he's a better passer than Robbie Ashford. I think we could, that's a safe comment. Uh, the Georgia thing, again, no surprise. What's interesting to me about Carson Beck is Georgia, he had an opportunity to win the starting job in 2021. And some people thought he would. I think he's a quarterback that Kirby Smart and the offensive coordinator, in this case, Mike Bobo, formerly Todd Munkin, will feel comfortable with. As, as people love to say, he can make all the throws. He's a good passer. So you don't have to worry about that aspect of the game. And Georgia has good receivers, so this should work fine. The irony there is the coaching staff never felt comfortable with Stetson Bennett. Never. And he was yet, he was the playmaker. He was the guy that exceeded expectation. He often went off script. And as a result, he was the offensive MVP in four playoff games. Pretty amazing track record. I'm just wondering how much Georgia will miss that with Carson Beck. Yeah, it is a, I don't know if it's a 180 from Stetson Bennett to Carson Beck, but uh, it's at least a 90 degree turn. Uh, I would say, because even though we've talked about this before, Stetson Bennett got the label of game manager. It didn't totally reflect the way he actually played. Certainly not last season. This was a guy, you know, Stetson Bennett's, I think best qualities were his athleticism, his ability to scramble and his moxie. You know, he wasn't that prototypical built in the lab, six foot three drop back pocket passer. That's what Carson Beck is. I mean, I think Carson Beck is much more Jake Fromm than he is Stetson Bennett. I think he's Jake Fromm with a little bit of a stronger arm. But when you think of like prototypical pocket passer, pretty accurate, you're not going to play with his hair on fire, take off and run, make one of those no, 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 oh yes type of plays. Like I think I think this is more Carson Beck. Um, I do think he, like I said, I think he'll be more from than Stetson Bennett. Maybe Georgia fans cringe at that because Georgia never reached its ultimate ceiling under Jake Fromm. I'm not saying the overall output will be better, worse, or otherwise than Fromm. I just think style of play will be more reminiscent to what Georgia got out of Jake Fromm, which you go back to 2018, Jake Fromm completed 67% of his passes. Uh, 2017, Georgia nearly won the national championship uh, with, with Jake Fromm as his starting quarterback. So 
you know, I think if, if Carson Beck is, is like from, but maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit stronger arm that gives, that gives Georgia a pretty lofty ceiling, I think, and gives them a, a chance to three Pete. And I, I think that will be their reality. I'm really glad you brought up that 2017 game. That was just a spectacular play away. And it was in Alabama's favor from Georgia winning another net from having a third national title under Kirby Smart. Just uh, I think it was uh, 23 to go for a first down in overtime, and Alabama seemed doomed, but Tua Tagovailoa steps up and makes one of the biggest plays in Alabama history. But in these playoffs, that's often what it takes. And then flashback to last season, not sure the prototypical quarterback would have won that game for Georgia. Another thing about Stetson Bennett, it wasn't just his athleticism, his improvisational skills. It was the ability to raise his game in pressure. And that often determines those playoff games. Tua raised his game and beat Georgia. Stetson raised his game and beat Ohio State in the semifinals. You uh, uh, wouldn't look like Georgia might be beaten. So that's what I wonder about Carson Beck. And I don't know about Brock Vandegrift. But I always wonder about these competitions because you're competing in practice and you're competing in scrimmages and the quarterback's not getting hit. And it doesn't really lend itself to improvisational plays. It's pretty much scripted. And that's why I always wonder if the competition is really close, I would like to see what the other guy, the unknown, could do. I remember when Johnny Manziel became eligible at A&M, he wasn't giving the job, I don't think, in the spring. It started spring. He was a backup, but he ended up moving up and he became a, you know, a Heisman Trophy winner. So I don't I just don't know enough about Brock Vandegrift because we don't we don't see we haven't seen him. You don't know how he'll play in a game. And maybe Carson Beck will play great under pressure. We don't know that. But Georgia, for Georgia, this season is not about the regular season. It's all about the national championship. Do you have a quarterback that can win a national championship? That's well, and I would I would argue, John, it's about getting through the SEC championship because Georgia's schedule, other than a road game against Tennessee in November and a home game against Ole Miss in November, th- those project as the two toughest games. They don't come till November. For the most part, Georgia's schedule is a cakewalk. And I think the the one possibility out there for Georgia that we we look past too much is what if they were to lose to LSU or Alabama in the SEC championship? Like, I think we, we just assume too quickly that they're going to win the SEC championship. What if they roll through this pretty weak regular season schedule, but then they face Alabama or LSU and Atlanta and lose? Georgia's schedule doesn't lend them much, much support as an SEC runner-up if you have to choose between a 12-1 and conference runner-up versus a 12-1 and conference champion. You know, a lot of times, if you're 12-1 and from the SEC, you're feeling really good about playoff selection. And Georgia, with the X factor of being two-time defending national champions, that's going to be hard for the playoff committee to ignore. But I also think it's going to be hard to ignore that, that schedule, too. 
So if Georgia were to lose in Atlanta, especially if that loss, say, came by a couple of scores, I'm not saying it would happen, but I think we're we're looking past you know, kind of the SEC championship a little too quickly and looking at the playoff because Georgia's not going to have support from its strength of schedule should it stub its toe somewhere. That's a good point. It We just don't know. But then you get into other matchups, things out of your control. What happens in the Big Ten? What happens in the Big 12? Uh, maybe in the Pac-12. We don't know how those things will play out. You think the Ohio State-Michigan loser could still be in the running for the national title as it was last year. Um, I would have a hard time if I'm on that selection committee. If Georgia loses in the champion, it's undefeated going into the SEC title game and loses. Yeah, it depends how it looks to that point. You know, if they struggled with Tennessee or struggled with Ole Miss, then maybe you start to have doubts. If they crush everybody on the schedule – and then lose a close one against you know Alabama or, or LSU. I think they're fine. But you know what if they needed a last uh, last second play or last second stand to beat Tennessee and Neyland and then lose the SEC championship? I don't know. I, I think Alabama at twelve and one as a conference runner up, or LSU as a twelve and one conference runner up with each of their schedules. I would feel more confident here in the preseason saying. Yeah, they'll they'll get in as a second SEC team than I, I feel about Georgia. I'm not saying they wouldn't get in because I think what you're saying is probably true. The committee's gonna be afraid to keep out the two time national champion at twelve and one. But I think Alabama or LSU would almost be a shoe in as a twelve and one with the schedule that they play, depending on you know, they're not being four undefeateds out there. Sometimes though, what looks like an easy SEC schedule turns out not to be that easy. I mean, we sit here and look at it in in August and think, boy, that's a pretty easy schedule, and I agree. But sometimes teams rise up. They're better than you thought they would be. If Georgia lost during the regular season and then it beat LSU or Alabama uh, in the playoff, it's definitely in, of course. But I think so. Yeah, as SEC okay. champions at 12-1, and they'd be fine. The bigger question for me is what happens if they're the SEC runner-up at 12-1. and Yeah, and getting back to Carson Beck, the, a game to circle to me for him is at Auburn. I, I know, you know, we've talked about Auburn, and, and we both have it seventh in a seven-team division. But it's at Jordan-Hare Stadium, it's uh, – a very hostile venue with a really good big game coach, I think. And that will be Carson Beck's first SEC road game. I think we will know a lot more about Carson Beck after that game. If Auburn can stay in that game early, I will be really curious as to how Carson Beck plays. And he may play great, which would bode really well for Georgia. John, I want to close with this. We mentioned in the last week three schools have named their starting quarterback, Auburn's Peyton Thorne, Georgia's Carson Beck, Florida's Graham Mertz. If one of those three is not the starter season's end, who do you think it would be? Who, who's the likeliest? Now, I know there's there's some things we can't predict here, like injuries. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not asking you to gaze into your crystal ball and predict it. A, a knee injury for someone based on performance 
who would be the likeliest to not finish the season as the starting quarterback? That is a tough question. See, I don't think Florida, I, I think, I don't think Florida has um, much in support much behind Graham Mertz, which is why Graham Mertz looks, looked, I guess, more appealing to Billy Napier than he did to me or you. And so he takes him. But if you get into late in the season and things aren't working out and the season's going down the tubes, do you want to try somebody else? I don't know. Maybe I would look at Auburn. Maybe Hugh Freeze will want to look to the future. More that's the direction I would go because I tend to agree with you on Florida. I don't, neither one of us are high on Mertz, but I don't see a better option on that depth chart. And I don't think that's going to change in November versus now. Whereas Auburn, your first year coach, you want to try this veteran transfer. We both think, we both agree that Peyton Thorne gives Auburn the highest ceiling. But if that doesn't come to fruition, if Auburn's spinning its tires, then why not in November go to the redshirt freshman Holden Garner? and try to sell the future rather than stick with your your transfer senior, Peyton Thorne. Thorne gets the first shot. As long as he plays well, he gives you the highest ceiling, you stick with him. If it starts going down the tubes, I think you might as well go with the youth movement and start selling 2024. And, hey, don't panic because, look, we got this guy who's going to be a sophomore next year. Everything's going to be fine. I think, I think that's what you do if things start to spiral the drain at, at Auburn. I think we're in accord on this, but do you think Jalen Milrow will be a quarterback at Alabama when it when it opens the season? I think so. I think that should be encouraging to Alabama fans. I think Milrow Milrow's to me the bold choice. Um it might it might implode with him. You really don't know. But I think if Alabama's gonna win a national championship this year, I think Jalen Milrow gives him the best shot. I think he's the highest end talent. What he can do with his legs, he's a He's a big play waiting to happen. Now, he might be a turnover waiting to happen, too. you got to get that cleaned up, or you're not going to win a national championship. You're not going to make the playoff with him. But I don't think Tyler Buckner, the Notre Dame transfer, is the guy you can win a national championship with. I don't, even, I don't know that Ty Simpson, who might wind up being the best passer of the three, but I still don't know if he's the guy to win a national championship with. I think with this Alabama team, especially if you're going to try to win old-school Alabama style, running the football, winning in the trenches, having a quarterback with Jalen Milrow's athletic ability and the way he can run the read option, and he can throw a deep ball too. Again, it might backfire. It might implode. They might have to make a change early in the season if he were to win the job. That hasn't been announced yet. But I think if you want want to shoot for the stars at Alabama, if you want to shoot for a national championship, which Alabama should, right? It's Alabama. That's what you're playing for. I think Milrow gives you the best chance for that. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. All right, well, we'll continue to monitor the Alabama situation in the weeks to come because that is one of the few starting quarterback battles that hasn't been named, and we'll see if John and I get any more cold feet about any of our other preseason predictions. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.